0: We all have an idea of what an American dream is, but how would you define an American nightmare? Arti Yahani and her family encountered every obstacle that an immigrant family can run into in America.
1: I remember as a teenager, my goal professionally was to become a prosecutor one day. And I was devastated, ashamed, and angry, and thinking, Dad, what did you do? I mean, I felt very, very distrustful of him. And as the case went on, as it unfolded, what became clear was that actually my dad and uncle were the fall guys in a botched drug war investigation.
0: She is the author of a memoir, Here We Are, American Dreams, American Nightmares. Arthi's work has always been personal. She went from being a community organizer with a bullhorn defending the rights of immigrants to now speaking to millions as a Silicon Valley correspondent for NPR, National Public Radio.
1: I became, professionally I became a journalist, a business reporter for National Public Radio, NPR, covering Silicon Valley, covering big tech. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, you know, what I did in moving from activism for my father and for other immigrants in New York City and pivoting to business journalism That was just me looking for, I needed to recover from some really hard work.
0: Her activism work before joining NPR was honored by the Union Square and Legal Aid Society. She received her master's from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and she was also a fellow at Columbia University. We will talk about Arthi's journey, her family, and of course, her memoir. Welcome, Arithi. I am so excited to have you on my podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So let's start with the title of your book. And I am reading your book. And first of all, I want to say I love it. It is Thank a you. wonderful book, and I hope everyone reads it. The title itself, Here We Are, American Dreams, American Nightmares, it just instantly debunks the myth of the American dream hmm. or the warped notion of what the American dream really is. Was that the intention? Well, yeah. I mean, I
1: think that the the subheading in particular, American dreams, American nightmares, it is in a nutshell my thesis about this country, which is that in America, uh, you can have the dream, which is really, I think to walk through doors you never even knew existed, to leap further than you could have ever imagined, to go to places that your family could never have entered. I mean, it's it's not like that in other parts of the world. America is incredibly unique in that ability to climb, mobility, that kind of thing. American Nightmares, though, is when it goes wrong, it goes really, really wrong. Mm-hmm. And the punitiveness Of our culture. It's deep. It doesn't leave you. And I would say that my father and I, you know, this book that I've written, Here We Are, it is a father-daughter story. My father and I each lived this contrast. You know, I would say I thoroughly lived the dream. He thoroughly lived the nightmare. We were both very hardworking, driven, you could say brainy, disciplined people, I believe that I get my work ethic and the way that I operate in this world very much from my father. But our fates were very different. And I got to leap and climb and experience that dream. And he, who was the backbone of my family, was utterly denigrated, turned into a quote unquote, criminal alien, um, and made to pay multiple times in a way that was totally unforgiving. And so I'm trying to capture, I think, that contrast. Too often, it's easy to describe this country as being just one or the other. We have a tendency to oversimplify, to say, oh, it's all dreams, or oh, it's all nightmares. And it's like, get real. It's not all one or the other. It's the both. And the uniquely American quality is that they coexist within a single family over and over and over again that contrast that I'm experiencing that I write about has spoken to many readers. And I've gotten notes from many readers about how in their own families, the extreme highs and the extreme lows have played out.
0: So, Arti, let's talk about your family story. Um, can you share it briefly with us, mm-hmm. especially for those listeners who haven't read the book? Sure. Yeah. So
1: in a nutshell, in Here We Are, I recount the Shahani family journey through America. (laughs) We came here in 1981, shortly after I was born in Morocco. We overstayed tourist visas and we were undocumented for a while. We got our papers through a sibling petition, a process that is now derided as chain migration, having your family member petition for you is exactly how we got our papers. An auntie of mine, my mom's little sister petitioned for us. We got green cards. And then we thought, okay, we are on the path to, you know, just a straight shot to the American dream, you know, it's going to be awesome. (laughs) And what ends up happening is I become, you know, now that I have papers and I'm legal and whatnot, I become a scholarship kid at a very fancy private school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I am, you know, stepping into a world where my parents, you know, you could say they don't belong where they're not invited or it's basically hyper elite. I mean, Hmm. my classmates' dads are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies or tenured professors at Ivy League universities. The tuition for my school in today's terms is a Tesla a year to attend. Uh, My parents jointly never made that much money in a year, Hmm. but that was tuition for the school. And while I was pursuing my kind of precocious uppity climb (laughs) through the American (laughs) school system. My father, he started his dream. He started an electronics shop on the exact same block where he used to shovel snow for four and five dollars an hour. And so he sold electronics, Casio watches, sharp calculators. This is before the era of Amazon, before the era of big box retail. And it, it seemed to be going really well. I mean, it was going so well that... My dad came home one day and he announced, family, we are moving to New Jersey. And I was raised in Flushing, Queens in New York City. And the idea mm-hmm. of moving to New Jersey was horrible to me. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Brand crisis. Uh-uh, I'm, not, I'm not a Jersey girl. I'm a New Yorker. What are you talking about, dad? But for him, it was like a middle-aged Indian man wants to be able to move his family to New Jersey. <laughs> it's a point of pride. <laughs> and And basically, we bought a home in suburbia. And so we could finally live in a space where there was more than one bathroom and Mm. we didn't all have to share one bedroom. It was five of us, my siblings, two siblings, myself, my parents. Um, Mm. So, you know, we we went from like our our crammed roach den of an apartment in Flushing, Queens over to multi-bedroom bathroom home. I think it was three and a half bathrooms, which is nearly one for each of us, you know, four toilets and five people. That was total luxury. And everything seemed to be going great until that is one day we get a call that my father has been arrested. And according to New York state, he is money laundering for the Kali drug cartel of Columbia. My dad and his little brother, my uncle, who was also running the shop with my father, were taken to Rikers Island jail, a notorious jail in New York City. And what commenced from there was, this is what I'm really unpacking in in the memoir, here we are, is my dad and uncle were brought into court and given what sounded like a terrifying criminal charge. It sounded like, according Mm -hmm. to the state, my family business was just a front for a drug cartel. I remember as a teenager, my goal professionally was to become a prosecutor one day. And I was devastated, ashamed, and angry, and thinking, Dad, what did you do? I mean, I felt very, very distrustful of him. And as the case went on, as it unfolded, what became clear was that actually my dad and uncle were the fall guys in a botched drug war investigation. The state, as well as the feds, were constantly in the search for real cartel king leaders and constantly failed to find and nail real king leader, uh, you know, um, ring leaders. Excuse me. And so they ended up getting prosecutions of shopkeepers and family pe- family guys like my my dad and uncle. So, long story short, my family was offered a plea deal. Basically, you can each serve eight months inside and put the matter behind you. Or you can go to trial and risk what's called the trial penalty. Very, Mm. a lot of people are not aware of this, but if you exercise your constitutional right to trial, you're actually punished for it. You face a a penalty for it. So that for example, if I take the plea bargain, emphasis on word bargain, I do eight months. If I go to trial and I'm convicted, then I could face eight to 10 years. Okay, Mm. it's a huge gamble. And this is the point I'm really trying to make clear in Here We Are, is the criminal justice system, it's not about innocence and guilt. It's about risk and reward, okay? How much of a risk are you able to take? How hard can you push for a better bargain? Emphasis on bargain. Um... And we didn't push very hard. We didn't know how to, we didn't have the resources to. If you've ever been pulled over by a traffic cop, for example, you can feel how terrified you might be in that moment when you're Mm. facing, for example, a ticket of maybe $100. Well, (laughs) imagine how terrified you are when you're physically brought into court and described as the enabler of the most notorious drug ring in the country or the city. It was terrifying so anyway my dad and uncle did what everyone would do in that situation statistically speaking they took the guilty plea and we thought that was it we thought Mm -hmm. the matter would be put behind them but then what happened is a second surprise punishment my dad and uncle each after serving their time even though they were green card holders, lawful permanent residents, even though they had family members who were American citizens by then, they were each taken in for deportation as a second surprise punishment. So they faced life exile. My uncle was promptly expelled from the US to India. That was our original uh, country of origin. Uh, He hadn't lived in India since the 50s, but no matter. He was expelled to there. And then my father faced the same legal system. And that's when I was, you could say in a way activated or the real turning point for me is up until that moment, I was trying to be arm's length with my family crisis. I didn't wanna think about it. I just wanted to be a good student and do well at school and achieve for myself. And I wanted to push aside whatever might be happening at home. But once my father was threatened with life exile, something was really activated in me, a sense of indignation, a sense of rage. I went from, you know, utter shame to utter rage. And I thought, mm. how much are you going to keep punishing one man and one family for a case that you, Mr. Prosecutor in state believed required no more than eight months in jail? I don't understand it. How much do we have to keep paying
0: for the same mistake? Like your book is also, as you mentioned, it's it's a critique of the immigration and criminal justice system in America, right? For instance, your story is in a way, proof that these two are interwoven and how, uh america's criminal justice system disproportionately is against poor and against immigrants yeah when i was reading your book you partly blame the judge who presided over your dad's case Mm -hmm. for what happened to your dad you also blame the prosecutor for coercing your dad into a plea bargain how did that impact your struggle to get justice for your dad? Because you had to work with the with the judge and the system while being so skeptical and so wary of that system. Once I
1: realized what was happening and the deportation case that would ensue, I was activated. I kind of launched myself into action. I was about 19 or 20 years old and I decided, no, I'm going to take this on. And it became the greatest educational experience of my entire life. It was very painful, but it was deeply educational. Uh, And what I learned is that the justice system, whether you're talking about the criminal justice or the immigration system, it's a game of information asymmetry. I know certain things you may not know those things, and you not knowing those things helps me to get what I want. It's it's a lesson in power, how power works, okay? Mm-hmm. Whatever the context is, the way power works is to keep one side blind, hand tied, yeah. uninformed, exactly. That's actually in the very nature of the exploitation of power. And that's what played out in my own family. You mentioned the judge and the prosecutor. I want to explain two things. I don't believe that the prosecutor coerced my family into taking a plea. I believe the system is designed to coerce people into pleas. And it doesn't. it's not the individual actor who's pushing it. The system mm-hmm. is designed that way. So it's not that he himself was like, gun to the head, you got to do this. It's more the criminal justice system pushes your back against a wall. And is like, you'd be crazy not to do this. So, you know, I don't, uh, I just want to emphasize that I believe what I'm tracing in my memoir, Here We Are, is not some, it's not an exceptional case about an innocent man being forced into a plea deal that was utterly unfair. I think what I'm tracking in Here We Are is a far more mundane example of how the system takes someone who's fundamentally a good and hardworking person, and recast them as some horrific villain to extract a plea that serves nobody, including society.
0: And why do you think that is the case? Why do you think that happened to your dad? Well, it happens to millions of people
1: a year. The criminal justice system is America's cancer. It's, I mean, it's a, a protracted problem that I think, in fact, many citizens in America, African-American and Latino citizens have reflected on the way it works, how it takes good people and criminalizes them for life. It's never that you're just doing time for a specific wrongdoing or alleged wrongdoing. It's that the consequences continue well after that plea deal is done. And I think only more recently, immigrants, newcomers, people who we want, you know, the nature of us as immigrants is we want so badly to believe in that dream because yeah. our, fam- our families bet on it. We bet yeah. on it. Of course you want to believe it. you bet on it and it's a new bet, right? And what my family learned very early on in this new bet is, oh, it's it, it doesn't actually exist for a lot of people. So, you know, You'd mentioned the immigration system as something that I talk about extensively in the book. What I do in the book is I track how the criminal system has expanded and how the tentacles of that system now punish you additionally for immigration status. So previously, you could say like in the eighties or prior to the 1980s, a man like my father would have been arrested, having a green card, having American citizen family having the suburban home in New Jersey, he would have done his time, and then he would have been allowed to resume his life. But because America has changed the legal system, deportation is now a second mandatory punishment after pretty much any encounter with The criminal system. So we've heard of mass incarceration. Mass incarceration is a term that many people I think are familiar with. We've seen documentaries about it, we've seen movies about it. Mass deportation, I think, is less familiar to people. And mm-hmm. what we don't realize now, and I'm you know, I'm a journalist, and many of my friends are journalists. We we are the front lines of history, we are writing the changes as they happen, doing the first pass, right, the first take. Many of my friends are not aware of this, but America has, since the 1990s, steadily created a mass deportation system that is tagging and pulling out millions upon millions of people in a very steady churn without any consideration for their American citizen family members.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Many Americans may think that deportation is limited to undocumented individuals or people who are out of status but that is not the case your dad was green card holder and he was at the ri- at risk of being deported as yeah. well so yeah. it's it's mm-hmm. a very ironic and warped system that we see until you have citizenship you cannot basically be comfortable in this country in terms of your legal status?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting what you're pointing to. It's that many of us want to believe that the system is fair and that all I've got to do is put my head down and work like a busy worker bee and everything's going to be all right. That was my father's philosophy. Mm. That's how he lived his life. And then the real world hits you. And you learn, oh, it's not fair. Oh, wait, there's discrimination. Oh, wait, there's structural racism. Even in this country, even in you know what we believe is the greatest country on earth, these things exist. And so part of what I'm trying to do in my memoir is show how a man who was really just trying to support his family got tossed into a system that is relatively new, but with dynamics that are relatively old and well worn in the US, which is punishing people of color through the legal system. It happens a lot in America. We often don't wanna see it. But you know what? If you want a more fair and just society, you have to see it. Because that's the only way to fix
0: it. I think what kept you going, like when It seemed like everything was working against you, right? What kept you going? This is a key point to me, is that I believe American law
1: is increasingly and fundamentally misguided, racist, restrictionist against uh, migrants, against immigrants. The very nation that is supposed to be the nation of immigrants, it's supposed to give newcomers an opportunity, has made it increasingly impossible for newcomers to come and settle. That's one thing that's going on, and my father's life illustrates that abundantly, unfortunately. Now, here's the flip. How is it that a teenager, who wasn't even born in this country, okay? Mm -hmm. I come from Indian parents, born in Morocco, in Casablanca, raised in Flushing, Queens. How did that child, that first-generation immigrant daughter, feel such indignation when she learned her father was going to be tossed out of America. Where did that come from? Where did that indignation, where did that like fighter spirit come from? It's not just or even primarily her DNA. It's a culture telling her, Arthi, the Shahanis belong. Doesn't matter what the laws say, You know in your heart and we know in our hearts that your family is part of this country. So while the law was restrictionist, is restrictionist and pushes people out, the culture is fundamentally open and absorbent and told me by way of my teachers, my neighbors, my friends, the media, it told me you can fight and you can win and that's what justice looks like. So that's what kept me going. Now, as I, as I trace in the book, I had no idea, Sadia, I had no idea when I began this fight for my father, when I was about 20 years old, hmm. that I would be fighting for a decade of my life. I had no idea. I thought it was six months, eight months, nine months, but no, it took 10 years, 10 years to keep my father in America and part of what I'm doing and Here We Are is I'm asking myself the question that so many immigrants ask ourselves, which is, was it worth it?
0: Hmm. So was it worth it? I mean,
1: what do you think from how I've written? I'll, I'll tell you what I think my answer is, but from you've you've read the book, you've read my take on it. Does it seem like it was worth it?
0: I do. I do. And what what you're saying is that believing in the fact that we all belong here, I think that is the biggest trigger for all of us to fight for any cause that we take on, whether it's pursuit of social justice or otherwise. Because as immigrants, we've always believed in America being a nation of immigrants. And I think that's what sets America apart from other countries. But my question to you is, R.C., there, I see this, like, continued and consistent erasure of America being a nation of immigrants that's happening currently. I was reading this article, which was a couple of years ago, but I just recently came across it that U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services um, rewrote their mission statement and they took out the phrase nation of immigrants. Do you think that's like something that we should be aware of or people are not paying as much attention and these subtle changes are going to go on to something bigger? Well, I actually
1: have a different view, which is that I think that we are hyper aware of what's broken and what's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hyper aware of the racist attacks against immigrants at this moment. And why, why I say hyper, it's that we can be in danger of not seeing this country clearly, because we're so afraid of temporary changes in leadership that don't get what America's about. So here's my take. My mm-hmm. take is that this country is long overdue for a massive legal embrace of immigrants, legal embrace. It's been decades since people have been given green cards and mass through a legalization process. It's been a, couple of, a few decades now that we've had a mass deportation system that tosses people out irrespective of who they are, who their families are. We need a total revamp. But here's what I observe, is that political leaders are now recognizing that. So yes, on the one hand, you have the immigration authorities (laughs) rewriting (laughs) certain rhetoric and maybe pandering to a certain base for political support. But you also have, for example, on the on the Democratic presidential candidate side, I mean there are a lot of candidates, fewer now, but there are a lot of candidates. Go and look at their immigration platforms. They are making proposals to stop criminally prosecuting people who come here in search of the American dream. They are making proposals to grant green cards to millions upon millions of newcomers. And by newcomers, I mean at this point, you know, 20, 30, 35 years in the country. You see actually the pendulum swinging again. And so I think that's something we have to keep in mind is that <laughs> throughout American history, the newcomer has had to fight for acceptance. I mean, what my family went through, the specific details, the specific facts are specific to us, but the dynamic of being newcomers in this enormous place that is constantly ambivalent about the newcomer and on the one hand, knows that we have to accept that person, but on the other hand, resists it that's a really, you know, that's an ongoing dynamic in America. We lived it, others will live it. But I feel, I mean, I just fundamentally feel optimistic that the pendulum swings.
0: So talking about your dad's case, you not only fought his case, but then you took on other people's cases as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. What was
0: that like? And when I think about it, I was like, as you mentioned, it took you a decade to work on your dad's case. And then by then, weren't you like exhausted? And why did you decide to take other cases? And what were some of the challenges along the way?
1: Oh, I was totally exhausted. And I think it's kind of funny. I mean, you know, I became, professionally, I became a journalist, a business reporter for national public radio (NPR), covering Silicon Valley, covering big tech. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, you know, what I did in moving from activism for my father and for other immigrants in New York City and pivoting to business journalism, that was just me looking for, I needed to recover from mm. some really hard work. I needed, I needed to fix my credit score. My credit score got terrifying. <laughs> you know, I'd been to some really nice schools and my credit score was terrifying. But again, in what other country does a working class immigrant daughter who'd spent her twenties in prisons and fighting to keep her dad here. And what other country does she then pivot within two or three years into business journalism and get a job as a correspondent in one of the largest media companies in the country?
0: On the one hand, you are fighting against the flaws in criminal justice system in America, and then you go to Silicon Valley, you start interviewing these tech titans did you see the dichotomy of how American dream is manifests itself in different ways? For instance, I mean, if you're wealthy, at most, if you commit a crime, you face civil penalties versus criminal penalties. Hmm. Did you see the irony of it? And how did you feel about that?
1: Oh, again, I, I feel that. And again, I, I'm reflecting on this in my book. And here we are, American dreams, American nightmares. It's how power works. Hmm. Take, for example, one of the companies I ended up covering when I became a a business journalist, Uber. Okay. Uber Hmm. is a brand that, you know, you might have the app installed on your phone. You know, you use it, you know, you might be calling an Uber from your studio after this interview to go wherever you're going.
0: You know, I have uninstalled and installed it so many times. Uh, okay. I Sometimes I want to take this model stand and I'm like, okay, I'm uninstalling it and I will install Lyft and I go back to Uber. I see. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle. So you're, you're, you're a recurring delete Uber user. Okay. <laughs> there are many like
1: you. Okay. This is, uh, I've heard this before. I'm like, does it really work when you keep deleting it? Um,
0: uh, sometimes so, it does, actually. It
1: but, makes
0: me feel good about myself. I know, no. in the
1: moment in the moment and so you can can post that you deleted Uber but then do you post that you reinstalled it I don't (laughs) (laughs) but you know that company former CEO Travis Kalanick you know he's a, a bull in a China shop he's a guy that would lead a team going into city after city and irrespective of their local laws ordinances requirements dictates of elected leaders irrespective of that He'd hmm. say, let's set up shop. Let's do this thing. And it it was fascinating to me in covering Uber to see how this leader, this chief, you know, with uh, an army of hundreds, if not thousands of lawyers, could go in and just exploit legal loopholes. I mean, Uber is a feat in legal engineering far more than any <laughs> actual engineering. But to watch him pull off his feet in legal engineering to just break rules flagrantly in different municipalities and to never face any criminal prosecution. It fascinated me. I, I remember leaving home, leaving Queens, New York City, my father, his travails, leaving all of that and coming to Silicon Valley where the creme de la creme live, where the hyper elite are setting up shop, where they're building things and seeing, wow, they don't have to pay the way working class people do. They don't face Mm. consequences to their actions, far greater actions than anything my father did. They don't face consequences like a shopkeeper on 28th Street and Broadway would. And Mm. so again, I would say that my life's journey has given me such a lens into how power works. I've mentioned before the information asymmetry, what you know versus what you don't know, affecting how you can play the game. And the other thing is simply the consequences given to you for breaking rules. Do you face 10 to 20 years in prison? Or do you face maybe a $10 million fine, which is a drop in the bucket for your company, given the investment capital coming from Saudi Arabia, and
0: it's fine. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to America being a capitalist society, right? Mm-hmm. It's Your worth is valued monetarily as an individual. We see that with individuals, we see that with organizations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that
1: America is clearly at a juncture, where, as in many parts of the world, there's a burgeoning populist movement. And what we're grappling with is a government that has been failing its people, us, for Mm -hmm. many, many, many years. And part of that failure has to do with vision. Who are you serving? What are you serving? And so I believe that in my book, and here we are, What I'm trying to do, not just for myself and my family, but for my country, is show, hey, here's a family, the Shahani family, that was failed by the system. And we're one little speck of dust. There are many, many, many others like us. And when you look at us all together and you ask yourself, does the American dream exist anymore?
0: Hmm. You've
1: got to look at whether it exists for the newcomer. And if it doesn't exist for the newcomer, that's incredibly telling about what's happened in our country, how it's failing people.
0: I feel like it exists for people depending on how you got to the U.S. I feel it's very much a function of where you are coming from and what led you to be in the U.S. I've seen that with so many of my friends. And my husband and I came to the U.S. early 2000s for college. And then it was the same process after college. You get your H1 and then Mm -hmm. your green card and citizenship. And yes, your American dream is realized in many ways. But then the path that we took was very different from the path that others take and probably the path that we took. And I'm not trying to trivialize our struggles and our issues with the system and all. And we are probably very vulnerable at times as well. But it was relatively easy compared to the stories that I hear through my podcast.
1: Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that. Here's something to keep in mind. The the journey of a middle-class or upper-class Indian from Mm -hmm. Asia to the U.S. through university is not representative of the American immigrant experience. Those are, you know, at most tens of thousands of people, but the actual pool of people we're talking about are tens of millions of people.
0: Yeah.
1: So that little sliver of what I would say is elite migration I mean, the migration is supposed to be a way to level the playing field. That's the foundational story of this country is you had people, the Irish, the Italians, when they were coming over through Ellis Island, were they educated and university bound? No, these were house servants. These were, you know, they were they were fixing shoes and and laying bricks and you know cleaning homes and cooking for the upper class but then their children got to leap
0: Mm. okay
1: and so what i think is really important to understand is that if you are somebody who's migrated to america from means you come from a relatively stable the middle class or wealthy home Mm. You are not, <laughs> you are not the working class migrant of the post-colonial yeah. era searching for
0: home in a horrible global reordering. I feel America tends to serve people like us better. It It is geared towards doing that, which is unfortunate because what you said, generations of immigrants who came 200 years ago, They didn't have the means. They didn't even have, there was no legal visa system or immigration system. Mm -hmm. Contrary to what many people may say, oh, our ancestors came legally. (laughs) There was no no system before that. But now America is changing. It wants people who in some ways are self-sustaining, initially at least. Well,
1: I I mean, I I actually think that that's what the conflict is. It's that Mm. you have some political leadership whose notion is, oh, we just want the quote unquote skilled migrant.
0: This exact model is followed in other countries as well, like Canada. Canada only focuses on skilled uh, migration. Here's the thing is, I think that there are certain ways that America, that the United States, which
1: is an enormous country, is actually at peace with being exceptional or outlier, hmm. okay? Exactly. You know, So for example, the US plays a role in the world or has historically played a role in the world Um, in terms of, you can call them humanitarian interventions against, for example, mass atrocities, that is a a uniquely U.S. role. I mean, for example, Samantha Power, who recently wrote a memoir as well, uh, writes extensively about the distinctly American role when it comes to intervention in, Mm. in foreign conflicts for humanitarian purposes. I would also posit that the U.S. plays a distinct role when it comes to migration. We're the first nation state to allow or to have birthright citizenship. Okay. Right. If you were born here, you are of here. That's distinctly American. No other country did it before. So when I hear people, talking about U.S. migration and saying, oh, it should be like that country or that country. What I think to myself is, wait, we were the leaders and now you want us to be the followers?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we be a country that continues to defiantly have our own vision of how expansive we can be? Because you know what? When you allow people to come in with the openness that we do, that's how you get fusion cuisine and tech startups.
0: Absolutely.
1: You know? It's it's part of the culture of this country. So like, yeah, I, I think that anyone who says, oh, well, Singapore doesn't do it that way. I'm like, well, I didn't sign up to live in
0: Singapore, did you?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just yeah. want to go back to your memoir for a second. What did you learn about your family through this memoir when you were writing this memoir?
1: I would say that the most important thing I learned about my family was the specific reason we came to America. I'm very close to my parents. My father has since passed and here we are is in a lot of ways a dedication to his life, a eulogy for his life. My mom is still with us and I remember asking her, actually with some resentment. I was when I was writing the book I was working through a great deal of resentment. Okay, hmm. the resentment that hmm. I had that my life had somehow been constrained too much by what my parents were dealing with and that they leaned too heavily on me. Again, these are really familiar feelings, right? So I remember asking my mom, like, mom, you guys always told us we came here for a better life for you kids, but we had a crappy life. I mean, we grew up Mm -hmm. poor. Like I vividly remember growing up in a one bedroom apartment in New York City where the heat Mm -hmm. didn't work and, you know, a roach would crawl on my bare skin when I slept and I would wake up with that and, you know, that kind of thing dad was incarcerated. We fought a long protracted deportation case. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was a really tough life. Why the heck would you and dad as two adults with three little children, why would you cross the Atlantic ocean and choose to live undocumented? That Hmm. is crazy. Who does that? Why would you do that? And that's the first time that my mom actually opened up to me and told me the specific push factor. Now, my family back home in Morocco was living in what's called a joint family. This might be very Mm. familiar to you Mm. with living with, you know, my mom and dad with my dad's brothers and his mother. And my mom was in a situation where my grandma, uh, my father's mother, would not allow my mom to leave the home without permission would not allow my mom to open the refrigerator without permission, would toss plates at my mom if she didn't like the food that was made. My grandmother would not allow my parents to sleep in the same room. So, and this is a very embarrassing fact that I shared, my father slept in the room with his mother and my mom slept on the living room floor. Mm -hmm. And that went on for years and years and years. And then at some point, a specific thing happened And it was a straw that broke the camel's back. And my mom attempted to take her life. You have to understand, my mom is the most resilient human being I've ever met. She is not somebody who is prone to giving up. She has tremendous emotional resources. So for me to hear that the most resilient person I know tried to take their own life is wild. I had no idea about that. She was not successful. She swallowed pills. She ended up waking up anyway. She came back too. I was born nine months later. I was an accident. And when my parents brought me home from the hospital, my daddy, my grandmother, would not let mom and me into the house because I was a girl. She's like, what have you brought me? Another girl? This wretched thing. And at that point, my dad finally gave in to what my mom had been requesting for quite a while, which is, hey, let's take the kids and go to America. Let's just get out of here. And this is kind of the the funny thing about, about migrating to this country. And many people, this will be familiar to many people, is it was in a way easier to cross the Atlantic Ocean and tell the family, oh, we want a better life for the kids. It was easier to do that than it would have been to try to move across the street. The distance was security. And so that fact of why we came here, it's really humbling to me. And it's made me change, for example, how I see the families at the border. When you look at the images of who's coming in from the border, it's women and children. It's a lot of women and children. Then you call up the lawyers who are doing the the legal work down there, as I have. They'll tell you the caseloads are overwhelmingly mothers with their children. You know what? I have a great deal of not just sympathy for them now, but empathy. Like, Oh you're fleeing to America. Maybe you're fleeing rape, gang rape, sort of consequences of the drug wars. Maybe you're fleeing an abusive household. Whatever it is you're fleeing, America, you've long seen it, as my mom did, as a land of freedom. And that's okay. If it could be okay for us, why isn't it okay for the the newest generation?
0: And how important do you think it is for kids to ask their parents this question, the one that you asked your mom? Oh, if you don't ask, you'll regret it. I I just,
1: I know it because I've had so many people who've read my book, whose parents have already passed and who've sent me tearful notes about how they wish they had known, they'd wish they had asked And so Mm -hmm. you do yourself the favor. I mean, it's really awkward, right? Like it's, you know, you're sort of, you might be sort of like arguing with your parents about what you're going to have for dinner and then suddenly be like, so tell me about the real push factor. I mean, it's (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's, it's kind of inelegant, but I think that in part, while migration is for many of our parents, for many of us, the boldest thing we will ever do in our lives it carries a lot of trauma, a lot of very hard ups and downs happened along the way. And so that by design, it's something we don't want to talk about, right? Like a, trauma is a place where <laughs> there are so many lessons to be gleaned, mm. but it's very hard to revisit.
0: arti before we wrap up, mm-hmm. what are some of the lesser known facts about you? If you don't mind sharing. I just wrote like, a memoir. What, do do? what else? I do to know.
1: I I don't I feel like I just told all. I mean <laughs>
0: but, but is there something that people still don't know about you? What do you do during your downtime? Let's let's talk about that.
1: Oh, it's so boring. What I mean, I during my downtime I I read and I explore nature. You're catching me at the beginning of the new year, and what I just did for the last couple of weeks was literally I was in Baja, California in Mexico, and I was reading voraciously and Climbing up and down hills and mountains,
0: any New year's resolutions? Or do you believe in New year's resolutions?
1: You know, it's funny. I didn't feel motivated. There have been certain years where I've written New Year's resolutions, um, most of which I've never accomplished. Um, <laughs> but I think that I don't know that I have a resolution for the new year so much as, I mean, I have reflected a lot because we're in a new ne- new decade, right? Not just a new yeah. year. And I thought about what I was going through ten years ago, ten years ago. I was just finishing the fight to keep my father in this country. Mm. I was angry at my family for holding me back, for keeping me in a place where I was always fighting for them as opposed to achieving my dreams, whatever those Mm. may be. And I was pivoting into a new career. I wanted to know who am I when I'm not being an immigrant daughter? And the answer became business journalist. And I chased Mm. that really hard. And now I'm just trying to, in this decade, ease into a sense of self that isn't so angry at any one part, but Mm. knows how to let the different parts coexist together. Can I embrace my identity as the daughter of immigrants who struggled to be in this country and never forget it and somehow continue to be of service now to my country with that identity and the knowledge it gave me? Can I allow myself to keep having you know, a mischievous and voracious appetite for new and strange things. I mean, Mm. like, you know, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I want to explore. I want to write about many things. I believe my Mm. next book, by the way, is going to be romantic comedy. And so what I'd like to see for myself and for you is just allowing very different parts to coexist without having to be one thing.
0: And if you were to describe America in a word or a phrase or a sentence, how would you describe it? It's complicated, but ultimately I would say hopeful. Where can people find your book? It's like I'm sure it's available everywhere, but is there a specific place you would like people to um, go and buy it from?
1: It is everywhere.
0: My book is available
1: everywhere. It's called Here We Are: American Dreams, American Nightmares. It's on Amazon, on Indiebound, on Audible. I narrated the um the audio book you can pretty much pick it up anywhere. Here we are, American dreams, American nightmares. And my name is Aarti Shahani.
0: Thank you so much, Arti. This was wonderful. Thank you, you know, taking time out of your busy schedule for us. Thank and you very much. And we are so excited to share this interview with everyone. And thank you everyone for taking the time out to listen, give us feedback. And if you like what you hear, please share. We have a GoFundMe. Details are on website and social media and also in the description. Until next time, when we bring another inspiring story and in the meantime, stay connected.